0: Welcome to another episode of Clear and Present and what is clear and what is present today is that the United States Senate has released its report that points to causative factors for the global COVID pandemic and of interest is the nature of research that has been involved in studying various forms of microbial disorders and their possibility of human infection but also what that scientific and technological progress portends for needs for current biosecurity. And in this particular case, looking both retrospectively in terms of what happened and prospectively in what have we learned. With us today is a familiar voice to the Clear and Present podcast and one of our senior fellows at the Institute for Biodefense Research, Dr. Diane Deulis, who is now Distinguished Senior Fellow at the National Defense University in the Directorate of Weapons of Mass Destruction. Diane, welcome back.
1: Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here this morning. We have a lot to talk about.
0: Indeed. So why don't we just jump right into the focus, scope, and content of the senatorial report, because I think that, that provides much of the tractionable fabric for what we want to talk about today. Over to you.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to say a few words about that. First and foremost, this report is particularly comprehensive. As you know, there's been ongoing dialogue about whether or not SARS-CoV-2 emerged from a zoonotic or jump from animals to humans, or whether it was the result of a laboratory acquired infection, or in other words, a lab leak. So, we've heard a lot of discussion of that over the past probably more than a year or so. And uh, most of that discussion is centered around looking at the, the SARS CoV 2 sequence itself, right? And looking at that sequence and trying to figure out how it emerged. So, the paper covers quite a bit of that and sort of recaptures the essence of the different arguments. And in this case, that the SARS-CoV-2 is particularly humanized. Um, It it isn't something that is necessarily um, adapted to animals, and they have not yet found an animal reservoir, which would have been needed for it to jump to humans. But it is particularly adapted to humans. So that that remains an enigma on the technical side. But what I think is really fascinating about this report is that it highlights in the second part a huge amount of information of what was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where the so-called gain of function experiments were going on with regard to SARS-CoV-2, which as we know, became the COVID-19 pandemic. So what was going on there? There's been a, a number of things they were able to observe in the latter half of 2019 that was happening in and around the Institute. First and foremost, there was an influenza-like illness that was observed uh, of individuals living in the Wuhan area, and this started sooner than we learned about uh, SARS-CoV-2. It started probably back around October or November of 2019. At the same time, there was a very big visit of Chinese diplomatic and governmental officials to the Wuhan Institute to specifically talk about biosecurity and biosafety and how they had a plan to immediately revamp biosafety and biosecurity protocols. Um, And they made these announcements at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So a lot was happening there in regards to the possibility that there could have been a laboratory-acquired infection. This is just some of what the report covers, but I think uh, a lot of it is uh, they, they recognize, hey, these are observations, this is circumstantial. Um, as a friend of mine put it to me, um, if it didn't emerge from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it was not for lack of trying, uh, a little bit tongue in cheek, But the report fully highlights a slew of biosafety and biosecurity breaches, um, lack of adherence to protocols um, that would make it dangerous to be studying this kind of gain of function research at the WIV. Um, So, Jim, let me let me stop there and see what you think about all of that.
0: You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, there there are two things that I think need to really get into sort of the the public view or the public awareness. Number one is, is there a need for gain-of-function research? How important is that? And I think arguably one could say, as humanity tends to intrude and disrupt on natural ecologies, both by virtue of urban and suburban sprawl and spread, climate disruption, a variety of different human environmental and cultural factors, I mean, clearly, there's sort of a, an obligation to protect human populations, to understand how various manipulations to natural genomes and phenotypes could affect humans. In other words, it, it's, it's the precautionary step, what could happen. But my thought is, you know, if you're going to go down that road, you need to be protected, not only going down the road, but what you find along the road and what you do along the road. In other words, you don't want the stance of what would be preparation to then turn into potential risk or, as we saw here, pandemic problem. So the scenario itself is one of gain-of-function research and its potential validity and value, and then what needs to be done to retain that value as a broad-based global public health good. Now, you know, interesting, I want to refer back to something that, that we wrote well over a year ago. We had a paper that appeared in the journal called M-Sphere, and that was published back in February 2022. Can you tell our listeners about that paper?
1: Yeah, Jim, I'm so glad you brought that up, because I think we may have not realized it at the time, but that paper was quite prescient to what we're looking at right now in light of this Senate report that's just come out. When we... Uh, Wrote that report together, we discussed the idea that although we didn't know if, if COVID-19 came about because of a lab leak, we looked at and examined the different issues that would come into play if it were indeed a lab leak. So we we played pretend a little bit and looked at some of the biosecurity issues. And our conclusion, as you know, was that we really need to think harder about an upgrade our biosecurity policies and protocols. First and foremost, this idea of gain of function research and the funding for this, really, we should think about this as a subset of dual use research of concern or DERC. And a really important aspect in attempting to do that for all the reasons you just highlighted that we could see an increase in emerging infectious disease, diseases from zoonotic jumps and encroachment into natural habitats, etc. All the things you listed if, if there is going to be higher risk of these things, we need to actually do risk assessments of gain of function research. It's just as risky to do gain of function in the laboratory. And we're seeing more and more of these laboratories springing up around the world because people realize, hey, we need to be prepared for biological events that could be very damaging to populations. And so we want to have laboratories to study this. In fact, Most people um, would say that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was created by the Chinese just for the very reason that they had experienced the original SARS outbreak uh, a decade earlier. And uh, this was their attempt to prevent that from happening again. So this question of gain of function really requires doing risk assessments, weighing the risk against the benefits and determining uh, how to mitigate those risks in the laboratory. And then mitigation of those risks in the laboratory brings us to how do we do that? What What is the biosafety and biosecurity protocols that need to be in place to ensure once we've determined what the risks are, how are we going to mitigate those risks and enable the research to go forward?
0: So let, let's back up because you made a really important point that I want to reinforce for our listeners. I want to reinforce for our listeners who's ever listening wherever they are on the globe. One of the issues with talking about dual use research of concern is the connotation of what dual use means. And of course, the connotation there is that there's something that can be used for what may be considered to be a benevolent end, a biomedical end, treating people who may be sick, can also then be used to make people sick. In other words, what might be considered a bellicose uptake and or utility of whatever you're finding in the lab. Well, the the truth of the issue is that what it really speaks to is the duality of this type of research because the subject of the research, these types of microbial infestations and infections, whether they be viruses or bacteria or one of the most contemporary concerns, fungi and parasites, is certainly concerning. It's concerning to public health locally, regionally and globally. But the dual aspect of that entails the intent to not only do the research, because the intent of the research is to be preservative of human health, but to do that research in ways that are sustaining and preservative of human health, which then speaks back to the biosecurity issue. The conundrum that occurs is that, yeah, anything that occurs in the laboratory that creates an entity, whether through standard gain of function techniques and technologies or through some of the application of those that are most new on the palate, and you and I have spoken about this, some of the gene editing techniques and certainly aspects of synthetic biology, then afford the ability to create precision pathogens or certainly profound pathogens that have broad populational effects, such as we see with SARS-CoV with COVID-19. So the question is, How do we engage that level of biosecurity by intent, by design? I mean, if the intent is to do research, it's going to be protective of the human species, whether it's local or whether it's global. There's also the obligation of any and all research for non-harm. I mean, you may not be able to achieve the good ends because it is research, it's investigative. But at very, very least, there's the obligation and incumbent responsibility for non-harm. And that's where the biosecurity piece comes in. Can you speak to that a bit?
1: Exactly, Jim. As always, you're spot on in uh, describing this scenario. You know, when you and I were writing this paper that we spoke of from about a year ago, we talked about some of these issues. And so, for example, we have sets of protocols here in the United States that are pretty stringent for biosafety and biosecurity. There are regulations about using particular pathogens in the way that you describe. For example, if you just want to study a pathogen and how it behaves in the laboratory, there are different levels of biosafety, from BSL-1, that we call it, all the way up to BSL-4, and for the most dangerous pathogens. Now imagine the fact that you're doing gain of function on a a pathogen. And you may take a pathogen that is normally uh, easy to study at BSL-1 levels, the most sort of uh, least dangerous kind of organisms, or not dangerous at all organisms, and you could tinker with that and inadvertently create something that now belongs at a higher level of containment and protection in terms of biosafety and biosecurity. So we have rules about these things, and the... The issues that you describe are spot on Um, when doing these kinds of experimentation. There has long been concern that inadvertently uh, things could happen in the laboratory that uh, could lead to inadvertent harm. So one of the things we talked about in that paper was also something called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity. And we were, a year ago, we had sort of bemoaned the fact that we hadn't heard from this this, um, advisory board in a while. And it is their job to look at these kinds of biosecurity considerations very specifically. And we had asked that Perhaps they should be reconvened and take a look at the issues arising out of Wuhan and look at the gain of function and DIRK question much in a much broader context. And that is actually exactly what they have done, I'm glad to say. And so as these deliberations go on, they are talking about how to uh, update the current biosecurity gain of function policies that we have what should be included in it, considering all the novel and emerging biotechnology capabilities that we have now that we didn't have when these policies were originally designed. And they are hoping um, to revisit those and update those. Now, my concern with and, and so, Jim, of course, this is great. It's great that you and I were sort of in the front end of this conversation, and we can see some really good things coming out of the NSABB now as a result of that. One of my concerns is that, great, we are having this conversation here in the United States. We're beginning to get engagement and we're beginning to understand where biosecurity policy may need to go in the future. But really, we can't dictate biosecurity policy for the rest of the world. And, you know, the WIV is an example of something that although the United States provided some funding for some of this research, um, the policies that we would have wanted to see adhered to here in the United States were not necessarily adhered to in China. So I would maybe toss that back to you and say, what do you think that we could do in this international
0: forum? Well, wow, that's, that's a great question. I mean, So a couple of things. I mean, you know, the thought here is that if we have an investment footprint, we should also be able to determine how you stand on your feet. Right. 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 So, If the work was even in part funded by United States interests, then preservation of those interests with regard to the United States' stance on dual-use research of concern, biological toxins, chemical toxins, etc., things that are worrisome for public health, should at least be addressed and there should be some consensus on minimum standards. And this minimum standard may also involve a particular level of surveillance inclusive of sentinel features in the communities, which is monitoring the area in and around any laboratory that does gain a function, and that would then be multinational transparency. So what you're really seeing there is it's not just the United States versus or the United States interests in, let's say in this particular case, China, but rather opening that up so that the United States investments also allow a broader perspective that is therefore accessible by the United States as allies. And we're talking here bioeconomic allies, not necessarily in a military sense. I mean, the other thing there is the nature of surveillance that's necessary to do that. And if you recall, uh, Joseph DeFranco and and you and and I had addressed this in a paper that was a little more specific to the key areas of, of neuroscience and neurotechnologies, but is certainly more broadly applicable and even here. But the other question becomes, well, all right, if these things happen, and let's make the assumption, perhaps rightly so, that this was indeed an accident and the accident was due at least in part to some laxity in those safeguards and principles and protocols of biological safety and security, then what is the result of that? In other words, if there is attribution, even attribution of accident, well then what is the level of, if you will, retribution or at very, very least recuperative responsibility that should be borne by the site and or locale, nation, in which the accident occurs, particularly if the results of that accident have multinational consequences, which of course COVID did. So the question then becomes in the failure to be able to engage those responsibilities, admit to those responsibilities, admit to certain lack of transparencies, which may be cultural. I mean, there is a mian principle that's highly operative in much of Chinese culture and society, a principle of pride. And I think there's also the definitive risk to say, well, okay, did this really happen this way? But the other question then becomes, in in making those types of of attributions, whether or not this then represents something larger, is that then attainable as something as a crime against humanity, if and only if certain protocols that were in place by consensus agreement were not followed? In other words, is this now a crime of negligence, not necessarily malfeasance, intentionally doing wrong, but negligence, which is still a crime. So I think that the, the implications based upon intentionality as well as obligation for responsibility of effect are huge. And as you say, this is going to require considerable discourse. And I think it's going to be dialectical. I mean, I think it's going to be one position against another with various counterpoints that then need to be synthesized. What are your thoughts?
1: Wow, Jim, you really um, opened a whole Pandora's box there of issues. And I agree with you. These are very thorny problems to try and sort out. One of the things that I would note in just getting back to uh, at the beginning of talking about this report that's come out, and I mentioned that there was the, uh, first half of the report spends some time and attention in looking at the SARS-CoV-2 sequence itself and what could be learned from that as to whether it was zoonotic or a lab leak. And, you know, there is a uh, set of laboratories around the world where uh, outbreaks are examined from a public health perspective, right, and they can do sequencing and they can do uh, epidemiological tracking and surveillance in that regard. And uh, again, these are these are set up by various different countries. Some are sponsored by the WHO and so forth. And we talked about how the importance of doing forensics, for example, in trying to figure out, you know, exactly how emerging infectious diseases were emerging. We need to make sure they weren't purposely done or something like that, something nefarious. So I would suggest that as you very well noted, there needs to be some kind of set of norms and international standards to which there can be some adherence. Because without that, all of those things that you brought up, are, are exactly right. We are sitting in a level of question marks in terms of if something like this happens, what should be the ramifications? What is the level of attribution, right? If we had a way to perhaps leverage beyond these laboratories, these public health kind of laboratories that do sort of traditional biosurveillance and epidemiology and go beyond that and really start to talk about these, you know, ethical norms um, in terms of doing, you know, risk assessments for gain-of-function research, in terms of monitoring and surveillance for things that maybe just go beyond the sequence itself and go to building some coalitions internationally. So when something like this maybe happens, if there is a lab leak or something that a country is concerned about, they have a forum they can go to, and uh, and and not be uh, shamed into uh, a, a, a much worse problem and actually gain some help from the international community in the best way to mitigate the problem before it becomes you know a global pandemic so those are just some thoughts I had off the top of my head but you may have no, additional I agree.
0: ones I certainly agreed I mean I think that that once again, you've you've brought up something that's very, very important, which is that although the nature and conduct of this work is scientific and obviously has now become political in the truest sense, in other words, multiple populations, multiple polis have been affected and their governments have been profoundly affected on a variety of levels from the the medical and public health all the way to the economic and and certainly beyond. I mean, the ramifications within actual politics are huge. But uh, I think that having a, a common body that is sentinel and very much responsive to both cooperation on certain levels and competition on certain levels, what is sometimes referred to as a coopetation or a model, is important. In other words, the reality check is that there is going to be that level of competition, but there needs to be cooperation and key factors that allow that competition to occur in those ways that are safe. Even in those situations where there may be some possibility of what we formally refer to and, and others have as heroic rescue. In other words, you discover something in the laboratory that could be profoundly damaging. And then does that become proprietary information for you to be able to develop some possible treatment or intervention or vaccine, so to speak, as we saw with COVID? And then what are the economic issues that go along with that? And as you know, with COVID, there are a number of economic issues that came into play with regard to availability, provision and cost of vaccine. And then what that also does with regard to relative balances and asymmetries of capability and power between developed nations, competing developed nations, cooperative developed nations and developing and non-developed nations. So I think when you speak to the ethical piece, you're absolutely right. I mean, ethics is all about balance, balance of what can be done and what should be done or what should not be done, balance of goods and non-goods, relative goods, what's good for me may not be good for you, a certain balance of what is considered to be right and what is considered to be wrong under whose conditions of rationality. But more than that, what it really deals with, as you said, is risk assessment, the risks of doing certain things, in other words, risks and harms of commission, and the risks and harms of not doing certain things risks and harms of omission. And I think those things need to be explicit. And then any transgression of those consensus and defined upon protocols and parameters would need to be seen and appreciated as being malfeasant. In other words, understanding that these are the boundaries, but to cross them anyway. And I think that makes attribution and possible retribution, inclusive of remunerative retribution, a far easier process by consensus. So, Diane, closing thoughts.
1: Right. Well, we we touched on a lot of topics today, Jim, and I think all of them are going to continue to be hot-button topics um, in the biosecurity community moving forward. Certainly, this report that came out yesterday has pushed the ball a little bit farther forward on the side of the lab leak emergence Uh, For COVID 19, I think there's going to be a lot more discussions. For my part of it, what I am glad about is that the things that you and I were talking about a year ago will possibly have more urgency now. All the kinds of things that we, the needs for the biosecurity community that we talked about, not only in our paper of a year ago, but just this morning, rehashing them again on this podcast. I'm hoping that this breathes new life into all of those things, doing risk assessments, engaging in the gain of function and DIRK conversation more fully, and also trying to engage in that conversation internationally as well. Jim, I'd like to hear your your final thoughts.
0: Uh, I, mean, I, I think it, this is a necessary and important work in progress, and it's going to take work if, in fact, what we look to do is not just sort of go forward, but go forward in a way that is actual progress. In other words, beneficial progress to any and all stare, share and stakeholders that are involved. And, and that's that's complicated. So, I, Diana, I couldn't what, agree
1: well, more. I couldn't agree more.
0: If our listeners want to get in touch with you, your your email.
1: Sure. I'm diane.diolis.siv at ndu.edu. If you just Google National Defense University, you'll find me there.
0: Outstanding. Diane, as always, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. Thanks so much.
1: Great working with you, Jim, and nice talking to you this morning. Thanks.
0: Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us next time for another episode of Clear and Present.